from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. All right, let's open our Bibles. We're going to go to the book of Amos this morning. If you are new with us or you haven't been with us for a few weeks, we're in a series uh, that we've called it Prophets in Exile, where we're looking at the minor prophets until the end of the end of the year. And when you're studying the minor prophets, one of the things that you might want to might help you a little bit as you think about them is picture them as uh, like a prosecuting attorney who has come from God and has been declaring then, sent from God to declare to the nation of Israel, the nations of Judah as well, what God's concerns are with them. It'll give you a picture then of what's happening in the books, that you'll see what God is doing in these books. This week I was having lunch with a a pastor friend of mine, and we were talking about life. We hadn't caught up in a while, and and he said, what are you preaching through? And I said, oh, we're going through the the minor prophets. And he said, well, how are you doing that? I said, well, we're taking one minor prophet each Sunday and just summarizing their message. And he said, why are you doing that? I said, well, we're, we're gluttons for punishment. I mean, we just, you know, we're trying to make it hard on ourselves. But here's what he said, and it was really funny. He goes, oh, I love the minor prophets. Wait till you get to Amos. I said, dude, that's where we are this week. And he said, yeah, Amos just punches you right in the mouth. And I said, he does. And so just to prepare you, here's what you should do right now. You should, you should get out your headgear, put it on. You should put in your mouthpiece. You should put on the body armor. And we're going to step into the sparring ring with this unique prophet Amos. That's what we're going to do this morning, right? The book of Amos is is laid out pretty straightforward. You're going to notice in chapters 1 and 2 that God is speaking judgments on the nations that are surrounding Israel and Judah and also pronouncing judgments on is on Judah and Israel. You're going to notice in chapters 3 and 6 that God has a plan to discipline and deal with sinful Israel. And then in chapters 7 through 9, you're going to notice Amos' visions about coming destruction and future restoration. And in the middle of it, in chapter 7, you're going to get this interlude, this, this odd dialogue between a kingly official named Amaziah with Amos, basically telling Amos to go back where he came from. That, that's the layout of the book. It's a, it's a very interesting book and, and yet it's a, it's a book that just speaks very straightforward to you. Amos does not mince words. You're gonna notice when we get into the book of Amos as we talk about the various things he's confronting the nation of Israel with and you're gonna notice that Amos is very direct, he's very clear, and there's nothing hidden. So that's what we're going to see this morning. So stand with me. We're going to read Amos 1, 1 and 2, and then we're going to skip to chapter 5 and read verses 1 through 17. All right? Now we stand here, if you're new with us, we stand because this is the reading of God's Word, and we want to honor God's Word by standing and recognizing it is inspired and God-breathed, and we trust it. Amos chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Amos who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Now go to chapter 5 with me, and we'll begin in verse 1. 
Hear this word that I take up against you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left. And that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over into Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth, he who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into, into, into the morning the darkens and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves the gate, reproves in the, reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek God and seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you have said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. And it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord. In all the squares, I shall be wailing. In all the streets, I shall be, they shall say, alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards, there shall be wailing. For I pass through your midst, says the Lord. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. And may he bless the preaching of his word. Thank you. You may be seated. Now this morning, here's what we hope to see. And this is in your outline as your big idea. We hope to see this in the book of Amos. God's faithfulness to his promises means he will discipline his children in love. His discipline is always intended to point us to Jesus and to restore us. Let me say that one more time. God's faithfulness to his promises means he will discipline his children in his love. And his discipline is always intended to point us to Jesus and to restore us. Many times we think of living life in the kingdom of God and living life in the church means simple blessing on us because of all the goodness we have in Christ. But we fail to miss another side of God's promises is he'll be faithful to discipline his children, but his discipline is always intended to point us to Christ and to restore us. So that's where we're going to be this morning. So let's take a look at our first point as we look at Amos's story is our story. Because in the book of Amos, we're going to see ourselves in Amos a little bit, but we're going to see ourselves mainly in the nation of Israel. Now, Amos lived in a small town called Tekoa. It was in, it was in the southern country of Judah. Now, if you know much about the Bible history, you know that the nation of Israel at one point divided into two nations. They had the northern kingdom of Israel, which was the more decadent of the kingdoms, and they had a variety of kings that lived through it. You had the southern kingdom of Judah, which was their kings were of the, of the kings of David. 
They were generally the more faithful kingdom, either one that we'll notice as we progress that they became unfaithful as well. And, 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 and Amos was a unique guy. He was a, he was a shepherd who was also a fig tree farmer. He lived in the southern country of Judah in this little town of Tekoa, and he shared his prophecy during the time of the king Uzziah in Judah. You might remember that name, because in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah references Uzziah. And he also lived during the time of Jeroboam II, the king of Israel, who was a, a wicked military leader, but he brought a lot of prosperity to the nation of Israel. Now, Amos is not your typical prophet. We learn in chapter 7 that he wasn't a prophet before this moment. He wasn't even born in a prophet's home. He was a farmer. He was a, a rancher. He was a layman, if you will. He, was a, he wasn't a member of the special elite forces of the spiritual class. So we might say, that guy's the one that we're going to pick to go prophesy for us. He was just another guy. But this regular guy is called by God to deliver a message to Israel. Now just do, again, know where we are, understand your bearings, understand the, 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 the journey that we're on. He lived in Judah, the southern kingdom. He went to Israel, the northern kingdom, to deliver this message that God had given him. Now you'd think that if he were to do that, that it might be wise to go to one of the small towns and deliver it. Maybe like go to Riddle and deliver a message from God to Riddle where maybe few people might hear that message and see how that kind of goes over on the people. Well, that's not what he does. He goes to Bethel, which would be like our Portland. And he lands in Portland or Bethel, their most spiritual city, to deliver this word from God. It's like their Jerusalem town and Jerusalem city in the northern kingdom. And when he goes to deliver the message, quite honestly, it doesn't go so well. While he's there presenting his message in chapter seven, he is, as he's faithfully delivering what God has given him, he is confronted by this man named Amaziah, who's the spiritual leader for Jeroboam. And he's a spiritual leader in Bethel. And he's a spiritual leader in Israel. And this leader basically tells him, Hey bud, shut your mouth. Go back to your fig farming and never come back. We are doing just fine here in Bethel. We don't need your kind here at all. It would be similar to a prophet coming from Roseburg to go speak a word into Portland and some big religious leader says, go back to your kind. We don't need you. And we're looking around going, but your city's burning. You need something. That's basically what's happening here. Amos is delivering a word from the Lord, traveling up to this decadent nation to deliver something that God has given him to a major city, and one of their officials says, you need to go home. Now just for a moment here, I want you to notice just how relatable Amos is for a moment. How relatable he is to to those of us who call ourselves Christians. As children of God, according to 2 Corinthians, we are called by God to represent him in this world. We are his ambassadors. His representatives in this earth. And he has given us a message, a, if you will, a treasure that we are holding within these earthen vessels to give to the world a message that's from God. It's, it's the word of the gospel, the word of hope that we can be restored to God through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and not many of us were noble or elite or highly intellectual. We're just fools for Christ's sake. We come from every walk of life. We are 
loggers and we're lawyers, we are doctors, we're garbage collectors, we're teachers, we're students, we're homemakers, we're contractors. We're, we're just normal everyday people, but we have been sent by God and called by God to demonstrate and declare the gospel of God. And like Amos, we're all ministers of the gospel to those around us. That's exactly who we are. Amos is remarkably reliable. It should be remarkably refreshing when you know Amos and you understand Amos to marvel at the fact, I can relate to this guy. But just to be frank with you, from this point forward, that's as refreshing as it gets. Because the book of Amos is going to come at you hard and it's going to come at you fast and it's going to make you make sure you've got your headgear on and your body armor and your mouthpiece in because that's going to lead us to Amos's message. We're going to look at Amos' message, and Amos basically says something to the nation of Israel. And it would be, if we were to use a New Testament reference, it might be in Matthew chapter, in chapters 5 through 7, when Jesus says, hey, don't judge others around you, but take the log out of your own eye first. I titled the second point, look at yourself first. We could also say, take the log out of your own eye first. That's where we could start with it. You're going to notice in, in Amos' message, beginning in chapter 1, verse 3, that the Lord judges and declares judgment on the nations surrounding Israel and Judah. You're going to notice Damascus. You're going to notice Gaza, Tyre, Edom, the Ammonites. You're going to notice Moab. They're all listed from chapter 1, 3 to chapter 2, verse 3. You'll also notice that beginning in chapter 4, or chapter 2, verse 4, that he lists Judah. These are all the nations that are surrounding Israel at the time of Amos. And you're also going to notice a strange language that he uses. He says, for three transgressions of, and he, you know, named the country or the place. And he says, and for four, I will not revoke punishment. And then he lists some heinous sin that this particular land was doing. And it could, it, it ranges from destroying king's bones to carrying foreigners off into exile, to running roughshod over people. Basically, every sin that is listed about these foreign lands is a sin against humanity. It's something to do with the way they're treating people and treating foreigners. Now, you can imagine, just for a moment, being a citizen in Israel. You're in your most spiritual city. Some fig farmer shows up and decides he's going to give you a word from the Lord. And here's what he does. He starts off by looking at all the enemies that are surrounding you, and he says, God is judging you, Tyre, and he's judging you, Ammonites, and he's judging you, Gaza, and he's judging you, Damascus, he's judging you, Moab, and Judah, by the way, is also judging you. And he gives this little short little stanza about all the judgments. You can imagine being a citizen there, hearing this and saying, good, finally, God is going to judge all of our enemies. It'd be like medicine to your soul. And when you heard their crimes that they committed against humanity, you'd probably think, amen, that's right, bunch of decadent weirdos. They're awful people. You might even celebrate the coming judgment, even though you're not supposed to celebrate the judgment upon your enemies. You might even begin to celebrate. A fire of judgment would come and consume all of them. Finally, God is going to act. And then Amos decides to deliver the sucker punch in chapter 2, verse 6. When the Lord delivered and confronted Israel. At this moment, you can imagine, right? I mean, Damascus, Gaza, Moab, Ammonites, all included. And you're kind of in your cockiness going, yeah, finally. And then he delivers 
And for three transgressions, and for four, O Israel, I will not revoke my punishment. At that moment, you might think, okay, well, all we, we've seen what God has said to these nations, and, and it's a short little one-liner. You know, it's a good little quaint saying about something. God, this will be over in a minute. It won't take long for God to deliver, you know, how bad we are compared to everybody else, right? And you're going to notice in the text something fascinating. That the concerns that God has with the nation of Israel go on into the end of chapter 2, and then through the rest of the book, he continues to deliver his concerns with Israel. Listen to a few of them. Chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. They sold out the righteous people in the nation. They mistreated the poor. They were immoral beyond measure and sold people into debt slavery. In chapter 5, they oppressed the innocent and the helpless. Or chapter 4, they oppressed the innocent and the helpless. In chapter 5, their sins, he said, were great. They were worshiping false gods, yet hypocritically offering sacrifices to the one true God. And God saw through their insincere rituals and told them, I will not accept your sacrifices or your festivals. In chapter 6, they were at ease in Zion, comfortable in their wealth, and thought they were better off than all the nations surrounding them. In chapter 6, verse 8, could not be more clear, could it? God hated their pride. So what you have is Israel had become proud, self-righteous, entitled, and comfortable. And in all of that, they were mistreating others inside of their nation, especially those who were helpless and innocent, and they were remarkably immoral. They'd become fat, dumb, and happy, and arrogant. They were mistreating the poor, innocent, and help and helpless in their land, and using people for their own games. And to top it off, they were then worshiping false gods of every kind, and just adding sacrifices to the one true God as part of their ritualistic stuff that they would do to make sure they were right with God. And the whole time, God stood opposed to them. Alec Mortier wrote it like this in his excellent commentary on Amos. He said, during this time, both kingdoms, Judah and Israel, enjoyed political stability, which in turn brought prosperity. It was also a time of idolatry, extravagance, and corruption. The rich and powerful were oppressing the poor. Amos denounced the people of Israel for their apostasy and social injustice and warned them that disaster would fall upon them for breaking the covenant. The people of God had fallen asleep in the comfort of the privileges of salvation and needed to be jolted into the awareness that the only assured certainty of the possession of those privileges was the evidence of a life committed without reserve to being holy as their Savior God is holy. You remember the moment when Amos was declaring judgment upon the surrounding nations? Well, right now it seems like a distant memory, doesn't it? God does have an issue with the nation surrounding you. But Israel, guess what? God's issue is with you. Now, if you're like me, I, I know exactly what you may be doing right now in your mind, right? This is the moment where you think to yourself, boy, I really hope so-and-so is here for this sermon. <laughs> you know, right? I mean, I sure hope they've made it to church today. You know, maybe they're in the balcony, right? I mean, right? Or I also know what you might do, and this is what I did originally, was when I read this in 2020, I'm going to write in my journal, I begin to write things like, here we are as America. We're fat, dumb, happy, and arrogant. We're immoral, idolatrous, and corrupt. And you know, to some degree we'd be right. 
with that description. We would be right in describing things like that. But friends, let me just warn us for a moment. That would be the wrong target. The target in the book of Amos is us. The target in the book of Amos is the church. It's the people of God. See, it's easy to point out the decadence that we see in the world. It's not as easy to point out the decadence that we see in us. The church will spend, and you will see it online, you will see it on the street corner, you will see a variety, spending a ton of time rebuking the world for the world's ills and the world's sin, yet we will not devote nearly enough time to rebuking ourselves. This is one reason why Peter would say that judgment should begin and must begin with the household of God. I mean, we get it, right? I mean, you look around and there's a, there's a lot of stuff to deal with outside of these walls in the church. But listen, we, we can accuse the world all we want of being divisive while at the same time inside the church fighting with the same divisiveness. We can accuse our leaders of being controlling and dictatorial, all the while being controlling and dictatorial in our leadership of our spouses or our children or our employees or our churches. We can accuse the non-Christian world of their immorality and their, and their poor way that they treat people and their abuse, yet not deal with those things with inside the walls of the church because we don't want to look as judgmental and we don't want to exercise appropriate church discipline and hold each other accountable to God's standards of life. What Amos is basically driving at when he preaches this message to Israel is this. Israel, do you not see that your walk does not match your talk? I mean, the list could go on, but you see what Amos is getting at. This is why I think it's important for us to just ask ourselves some questions about this. This is, this is one of the reasons why God brings hardship to our lives. It's one of the reasons. Not all the reasons. One of the reasons. And one of the reasons why Israel faced the hardships they faced. We're going to learn that more in a moment. And one of the reasons why we faced the hardships we faced over the last several years. Because they should be a moment where we at least do some self-reflection. Some self-evaluation. We should be asking the Lord to reveal to us if there is any wicked way within us. We should be asking Him, Lord, evaluate our hearts in these things. It's one reason why you, you never know what's inside the cup of your heart until you get it bumped a little bit. You never know what idol, idols you really have until your idols begin to get taken from you. And suddenly you find yourself rising up in what you might call righteous anger, but the Lord would just call it idolatrous anger. See, what I fear of myself and what I fear of us, and when I say us, us as a church, is I fear that, that we might have looked over the trouble the last few years and simply pointed the finger out there, how bad the leader is, how bad they this, look at that, there's something hidden over, watch that, what are they doing over here? And this constant outward looking, rather than for a moment just saying, what is God doing in our hearts? And friends, just speaking honestly with you as your pastor, one thing that I noticed that in through 2020 that was surprising to me, quite honestly with you, was as we have displayed to you the glories of Christ and the wonders of Christ's kingdom over all things in life, I was amazed by watching online, watching people interact with one another, and the anger and the vitriol that came out, rather than realize that anger was revealing a potential idol of your own heart. 
We've all, we've all done it. It's one reason why in 2020 I put the news aside to say I need to read my Bible more. <laughs> I, I was getting angry, frustrated because it was revealing things in me about me. You ever thought that maybe God is using the outside stuff that goes on, the pressure that's going on, not because something out there needs a change, but because something in here needs a change? Hard times are one way that God causes us to deal with our hearts, our household, and our churches first. It's a place we should examine. So here's a question about this. Have you done that? Are you doing that? When you have a marriage struggle, is your first response was, well, if she hadn't, or if you wouldn't have said, I wouldn't have, or is it first to say, what, what, what's my part in this? The sins of the world are not nearly as tragic as the sins of our hearts. Christian, I hope you're aware that what the gospel basically says, at a, at a basic foundational level, it says this. Our sin was so bad, it took the Son of God to die for it. That's enough to just make us be sober. That's enough to make us never stand in a self-righteous judgment or criticism on somebody else. <laughs> Does it make sense? Because we know what's in us. See, do, do you see why I said earlier, do you have your headgear on? <laughs> you got your mouthpiece in? You got, you got the body armor on? Because Amos, Amos is going to give us body blow and body blow and body blow. Where is God calling you? To examine your life first. Now that leads to the second, the third point in our outline, which is God's covenant and discipline. Now knowing that God's crosshairs are on Israel, it's important to know God's plan to deal with Israel and why he dealt with Israel the way he dealt with them. Now you're going to notice throughout the book of Amos that he prophetically told them what was going to happen. In chapter 3, he said he would punish Israel and destroy their winter homes, basically telling them, hey, your cushy lives are over. Right? These days where you have lived off the prosperity that I brought to you, those things are done. In chapter 4, he says a nation would take them away with fish hooks, basically saying that is going to be remarkably painful. In chapter 5, he says there would be wailing in the streets and in their vineyards. In chapter five, 6, he once again reiterates a nation would rise up against them. And then in chapter 8, he says their feast would be turned to mourning and there would be a famine in the land for the word of the Lord. There could not be a more dangerous thing to happen than for God to stop speaking to his people. If that wasn't scary enough to read all these things that are coming... Notice what God says in chapter 4 of Amos when he basically said he swore that he's going to do it. The Lord of hosts, the God, the God of hosts, his his name. He's the one that's going to get this accomplished. The, the king of the universe is coming after you and he's got you and his target hairs. Meaning it's as good as done. See, now you might be thinking when you're reading all this stuff, like why would God be so hard on his people? Why would it be so harsh? I mean, he's going to take them out of the land that he promised them, move them out of the land. Why is he being so hard? 
Well, the good thing about the Bible is we're actually told in the very same book why he's going to do it and why he did it. In in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Amos, you'll read something. The Lord referred to the fact that he delivered them from the Amorites and from Egypt. Meaning, don't forget, I'm the one that delivered you from these enemies. And notice, he says, you are my family. You only have I known of all the nations of the earth. I have had my love set upon you. You're my family. And notice what he says. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. In other words, because they're his family, God says, I'm going to punish you. See, Israel is God's family, his children whom he blessed more than any other nation in the history of the world. That's why God punished him. We're told in chapter 4 something absolutely remarkable, that he virtually tried everything to get them to turn to him. I mean, just follow the, the text. He took their food. He took their rain. He brought blight and mildew and locust. He sent pestilence and had their young men killed in battle. He overthrew many of them. God tried everything to say, turn, turn to me, look to me, come back to me, seek the Lord and live. And yet, according to Amos chapter 4, he says, yet they did not turn to me. See, what you're reading about in the book of Amos is God being faithful to his covenant with his people Israel. See, long before they entered the promised land... God made a promise to them, a covenant with them, an agreement with them, if you will, that if they did the right thing and they obeyed God, they would prosper and God would bless them. But if they disobeyed God, he would send curses of every kind. Write this down in your notes, Deuteronomy chapter 28. You can look it up sometime. I I don't have the, we don't have the bandwidth to put it on the screen because it's very long. But I'm going to list for you some things in that chapter that will reveal to you God's covenant before they ever entered into the land of what he was going to do for them. If they obeyed, they would be high above all the nations on the earth. Their lands would be fruitful. Their homes would be blessed. Their enemies would fall before them. He would bring productive rain when it was needed. And all the works of their hands would be blessed. When all this happened and God blessed them, all the peoples on earth would know that God had done this very thing and they were his people. But if they disobeyed God, listen to this, their cities and fields would be cursed. Their wombs and their herds would be cursed. He would send pestilence and disease and mildew and blight and drought. That's all in Deuteronomy 28. They would flee before their enemies and would be a horror before other nations. Their sons and their daughters would be taken to another land and God would exile them out of Israel. Does that sound familiar? What you are reading in the book of Amos and in the other minor prophets for that matter is you're reading the fulfillment of the covenantal curses of God on God's people for their failure to obey their God and remember their God. We're reading about God fulfilling his word and being faithful to his covenant for his glory and for the good of his people. See, this was God's covenant with his people and his family. And one side of this covenantal agreement, if you will, is the discipline for disobedience. So what God's basically saying is to be a member of his family is a great and unique blessing. It's the greatest blessing in the history of the universe is to be a child of God. 
And it also brings great responsibility. That's what you're seeing. Israel was favored out of all the nations on the earth, yet they went after other gods, became arrogant and idolatrous, and the way they treated others was heinous and awful. Therefore, God says, I'm going to discipline you. Why? Because God is faithful to his covenant and he is faithful to bless his people and make them fruitful when they obey him. But God is faithful to discipline those whom he loves. Don't miss that. We're told this very clearly in the book of Hebrews chapter 12 that God's discipline is an activity of his love for his people and for his covenant. He is always faithful to his people and always faithful to his covenant. Don't miss that with God. So Christian, I I hope you hear this very clearly. Being a child of God is a great joy and a unique privilege. And there are curses, some curses that we can point to that Jesus took for us at the cross and fulfilled all those for us to become God's child. But we must never presume upon the grace of God or take that grace for granted. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves and he will discipline us for unrepentant sin. And quite frankly, that's why he's given the church the important moment that if we see a brother or sister in unrepentant sin, we are to hold that accountable and confront it. Why? Because God's covenant matters and God's people matter. If those things don't matter, then don't do those things, which is what we see in most churches today not doing those things. Why? Because we don't value the covenant of God or the people of God. This is all part of the covenant faithfulness to us and to God's covenant faithfulness to his own glory. But friend, don't miss the point. God will discipline those whom he loves if we are living in unrepentant sin before God. That's why these moments of hardship, they've got to be a moment where we at least go, all right, God, what what are you doing in me? Where have I strayed? Show me. Reveal your heart to me. But listen, God's discipline is always for something. It's not simply punitive. God's discipline is always to restore. And that's our last point today. And you're going to see this in the text. And our last point is the king the nations, and restoration. Now you see this in the very last paragraph of the book of Amos. Notice what Amos wrote. He said, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Eden, Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when, when the plowman shall take up, overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed and the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. What's intriguing is unlike Hosea and Joel that we studied the last two weeks, Amos seems to tell the people throughout the book of Amos that the, their plight's already decided. To use a cliche from my, my generation, the goose has already been cooked. 
It's going to happen. These things are going to happen. You're going to exile. Now, there's moments of mercy in the book, like when Amos tells him, seek the Lord and live. God might restore you. He might restore the fortunes of Joseph. And in moments of of restoration, like in chapter 7 and 8, when Amos has a vision of locust and fire devouring the people, but he prays and God relents. But in his last vision, he basically says, Actually, what God did was he took the plumb line of his covenant and he put it up against Israel and they failed. They don't measure up and they're heading for severe discipline. Yet, after all of that has been addressed in the book, all of the destruction has been prophesied about. Notice where God leaves his people. Notice where he leaves us. In this remarkable book of prophetic destruction to come, he leaves us with a promise of a king. Of one who would come from the booth of David and begin to restore and repair everything that was, that was destroyed. The nations would be his inheritance. This picture and promise is of a future messianic king, this king of King David's line who would sit on David's throne forever. It's a promise of a kingdom. A never-ending kingdom, never-ending blessing and fruitfulness. It's a promise of restoring the fortunes of Israel by planting them in their land, never to be uprooted ever again. What's fascinating is when you read that years later, the prophet Jeremiah, after the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., as the people of Judah are now taken off, he then writes something prophetic about this same type of language in Jeremiah chapter 32 when he wrote this about God's heart toward his people, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, and they shall be, they shall, they may be with me forever. They, they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing them good. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may turn, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. And what you're noticing is this is the kingdom of Christ being talked about and being brought and being prophesied about in Amos' day and in Jeremiah's day. In other words, Christ is the son of David who will raise up the ruins of what sin destroyed. Friends, even the disciples still did not get this. After Jesus was raised from the dead, they asked him in Acts chapter 1, when are you going to restore the fortunes of Israel? And he's like, have I been with you so long and you still miss it? The nations are Christ's inheritance and he will bring people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, not just from Israel. What you'll notice in the book of Amos is that the nations that were judged in Amos chapter 1 are the very nations that become the inheritance of the king of kings. The remnant of Edom and the nations will come to the kingdoms of Christ. Christ's kingdom will continuously grow, expand, and produce fruit. And he promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church and his kingdom from accomplishing his mission. Why? Because he has made with us an everlasting covenant that we are his people and he is our God. See, in the middle of all this prophetic darkness, what do you have? This moment of hope that says Christ will come. See, what do you, what do you see in Amos? You... You see in Amos that God's faithfulness to his promises means that God will discipline his children in love. But what's his discipline doing? 
It is always intended to point us to Jesus and to restore us. You, you ever wonder what the people of Israel were thinking at this time? Like, um, wow, there's this king coming. That means Jeroboam's not it. He's coming out of the line of David. David's not it because David's dead. What's this king going to look like? What you're seeing in the book is something remarkable that in their, in their failure, God still sent the Messiah. And here's what I want you, what I want you to notice, what I want you, I think you ought to see as well. Even though you failed, even though early on as you begin to look inward and realize, oh Israel, oh Dave York, rather than pointing the fingers, do you see your own sin? In that moment, you should be saying this, see your sin, but for every one look at your sin, take ten looks at your Savior. Even though you sinned, God still sent you a Savior. You know what, you know what Amos basically calls us to do? Seek the Lord and live. Conf- examine our hearts. See if there is any wicked way before us. And if there is, to confess that sin and turn to Christ and then never forget the grace of God. That's what Amos calls us to do. Let's pray. Let's do what Amos has called us to do. Right now, before your God, do business with your God. (laughs) He is probably stirring in you and causing you to see some sin in your heart. And take a moment now to confess that to him. It may be that you have become proud in your possessions. You have become comfortable in Zion. And you have mistreated others around you. And you're not giving of your prosperity sacrificially for the grace of God, the glory of God, and the good of others. Your possessions are possessing you rather than being used for the glory of God. It may be that in your pride you are pointing the finger at others. And you need to this morning just take a long look at the pride of your own heart. You may be in a conflict in your home with your spouse or your child and you are pointing the finger at them rather than asking, Lord, what's my contribution to this? You may be looking around at the direction of the world and blaming all the non-Christians and all the culture, sinful culture, blaming the governmental leaders instead of for a moment taking a long look into your heart to see what this is revealing So if you're in Christ, for a moment, confess those sins to God. Agree with him that they are sin, that you have indeed violated his word. You're not seeing the fruit of the spirit, you're seeing the fruit of the flesh. And confess your sin to God. And know this, that if you're in Christ, your God is faithful and just to forgive you of all your sin 
and cleanse you from unrighteousness. He is that kind of gracious God toward you because of Christ. But he doesn't just leave you in your confession. He gives you power to change in Christ. So, Father, we come this morning. We confess our pride. We confess our control. We confess our our unrighteous anger. We confess our self-righteousness. We confess, Lord, where we've looked at sites online that we know we shouldn't be on. We confess and acknowledge that as sin to you. Where we've been immoral, where we have not protected the innocent, where we have not stood up for the helpless, where we have not cared for those in need, where we have selfishly used our possessions for our own our own endeavors rather than for the glory of Christ. And we bring our sin to you, whatever it may be, and we confess it. We acknowledge it to you that it's a violation of your law. It's not the way you want us to live. And we thank you that in Christ you are faithful and you are just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And we ask you to help us to change, to be different, to in more moments be just a tad more self-reflective and do a bit more introspective and, and look internal a little bit just to check ourselves. But when we see sin, to acknowledge it, confess it, deal with it, and not just run away from it, but to lean into you for help to change. And so, Lord, we turn to you. We look to you. You alone have the words of life, and you alone can help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.